Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Federal employees who make rules on behalf of their agencies are wondering if the Supreme Court will change the ground rules. In Loper, Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo, herring fishermen suing the Commerce Department say basically Congress lets agencies get way too far in rulemaking. For some perspective, we turn to the chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States, Andrew Foyce. Andy, good to have you in. Thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. And is it fair to say that agencies that do rulemaking and also ACUS itself are watching this pretty carefully? Yes, uh, agencies certainly, ACUS as well, and um, academics and lawyers all across the country, because this has the uh, potential for being an extremely significant case. Loper is one of two that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on last week on February 17th, along with a companion case called Relentless. And both those cases pose the same issue. And the decisions in these cases will be amongst the most important of the term, if not in many years. If it wasn't for the Trump cases, they clearly would be on top because the real issue at stake is something that's known as the Chevron deference doctrine. And that's an important doctrine, not only in administrative law, it's sort of the Miranda of the administrative law world, but it's also one of the most significant cases in the law in general. What it basically is, it's a power struggle between the judicial branch and the executive branch with the Congress caught in between. And what the court is presented with now is whether to uh, reaffirm, modify, or overrule Chevron entirely. And Chevron's been around for a long time. It comes from a case called Chevron versus the Natural Resources Defense Council that was decided 40 years ago in 1984 and has been cited by the Supreme Court over 100 times over the course of those 40 years. But when you look at the case right now, specifically before the Supreme Court, herring fishermen were required to have a federal inspector aboard their boats for purposes of conservation and making sure that herring wasn't overfished, I guess. But then the herring fishermen are obligated to pay for that person's salary, which in some cases is higher than they pay the captain. I mean, isn't that in particular, in the narrow sense, is a pretty egregious overstep, maybe, of agency's authority. Well, it certainly is if you're a herring fisherman. Um, But sometimes facts of a case or the decision in a particular case, who wins, who loses, is not as important as what happens around the law. And inciting Chevron in those cases, the lower courts said that the uh, Commerce Department had the ability to issue those rules because of the way they interpreted their statute, the statute that was giving them the power. But the uh, plaintiffs are saying, no, no way, that's beyond your authority, and we need to move away from Chevron. So let me talk about Chevron for just a minute so we know what we're talking about. It's a doctrine that kind of oddly, unlike most Supreme Court doctrines that come sort of from the top down, this one sort of bubbled up from lower courts up. And it was really um, the late Judge Patricia Wald of the D.C. Circuit who named this the Chevron Doctrine. As the doctrine developed, it established two steps because the question is, does an agency have the authority to do what it wants to do under its statute? So the first step is to look at the statute itself and in a Scalia-like textualist way determine whether the statute is clear or not. And if it's clear that the agency had the power to take the action that it did, 
then game over, agency wins. However, what do you do when the statute is unclear, ambiguous, confusing? Which so many of them are. So many of them are, because that's how Congress writes them, either intentionally to make political deals or just saying, well, we can't work out you know, all the compromises here. Let the executive branch do it. That's why I say they're caught in the middle. So under Chevron, when the statute is ambiguous or unclear, the court will chip away a little of its own power and defer to the agency's interpretation of that statute if it is reasonable. That means that even if the court thinks that the agency's interpretation is wrong, the agency still wins if it's reasonable. So that's why agencies are so concerned about Chevron being overturned, because it would really take a bite out of the power they have vis-a-vis the courts. We're speaking with Andrew Foyce. He's chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. And we should probably say it may not affect ACUS that much because rulemaking, the process itself, would not change. It's just the extent of the rules that agencies could propose is what would be limited. Yeah. And, you know, we get involved more in those procedures, those processes that the agencies use, trying to help them to improve them across the board, regardless of what the legal rubric is around it, such as a doctor like Chevron. And we have seen cases in recent years where agencies were found by the courts to overstep. I think there was an EPA rule on waters where people essentially successfully argued a little pond in my farm is not a waterway of the United States. It's not connected to anything. It's not going to pollute the Ohio River, in which case the EPA was rebuffed, I think, by the Supreme Court. So there's a little bit of precedent here. Yes. And that is one of the cases that have shown that the court has been slowly over the years moving away from Chevron on its own without directly challenging it. And they've been taking up, as in that case, uh, I think it's West Virginia v. EPA, they've been taking up a new doctrine called the major questions doctrine, which is a little simpler. It's just one question. If an agency is trying to do a really big thing, if the regulation involves a big deal, like what are the waterways of the United States, that would apply to a lot of water all over the country. In order for the agency to regulate a major question, the authority from the Congress has to be clear. You know, you look at step one, it has to be clear, unambiguous, specifically granting the power to the agency when the stakes are high. A lot of room for wiggling still. What is a major question? When are the stakes high? The court didn't flesh that all out, but that'll get fleshed out over the years. So, so a lot of scholars and academics believe that that's the way the court is going to head in these two cases, is not necessarily overturn a 40-year-old doctrine that a lot of people would be upset about under stare decisis. The government argued that this would upset how things have been done for 40 years. Sure. But in those 40 years, I mean, look at how much the administrative state, if you want to call it that, and I'm trying not to make a political judgment here, but that's just a term that's convenient, tens of thousands of pages, hundreds of thousands of pages of regulation. And you mentioned this is a power struggle between the courts and the executive branch. I wonder, could it be also looked at as perhaps the court trying to impose on Congress some discipline over which Congress has seemed to have no discipline for the past 40 years? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I said that Congress is caught in the middle, 
both branches are saying, you know, give us more direct authority more quickly, but the courts particularly. But even then, the courts are chipping away a little bit of their own authority because traditionally it's been the court's job to say what the law is. I think there was a justice once that said the law is what we say it is. Yes, right. Exactly. I forget which justice it was. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember either. But, but whether the statute is ambiguous or clear, you know, courts traditionally you know, make those decisions. But under Chevron and now major questions, they are encouraging the Congress to perhaps do something that is not all that easy or even possible to do, and that's to make these statutes clear so that agencies understand what their authority is. Well, let's propose then, suppose the Supreme Court does overturn the Chevron deference in its decision. We don't know what it's going to decide. It seems to be leaning that way based on the questioning that was heard. And in the absence of any new laws being written in the interim, what do you think the practical effect will be for agencies, for EPA, for commerce, for the rulemaking major agencies? It's going to take the effect of reining the men, frankly. That will be something that the Biden administration or any Democratic administration would be very concerned about because when you can't get legislation through Congress, the next thing to try to do is to regulate it. But the politics of this and how agencies feel and observers feel about it really kind of has flip-flopped over the years. In the 1980s, when Chevron uh, first came down, and the Reagan administration uh, was in power. They just love Chevron. You know, we get to do the non-regulating or the regulating in our way that, that we want to do. But then it flipped over the years. And when Democrats became in power, then liberals switched positions and began to be big supporters of Chevron, where they had opposed it during the early 80s. And yeah, as you said, the administrative state, such as such as it is, people call it that. Some people don't like that name, but it's certainly true that there are more agencies and there are more regulations, you know, by factors and factors exponentially than there used to be. But uh, without Chevron, I think you're going to find more of an effort to work things out between the uh, executive branch and the Congress. Yes, and ultimately, you could look at regulation as existing in a tension between liberty and the fact that we have a very crowded, complex society, and what someone does has a lot of effect on other people, which may not give them the right to have that effect. Therefore, you need regulation to have ground rules so we can live together, and again, liberty on the other side. And there is really no right answer. I mean, it's a constant... It's a balance. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant balance. And in this simple case of herring fishermen, they don't want uh, you know people looking over their shoulders, much less people that they have to pay to look over their shoulders. And for the rest of us, it'll mean more expensive herring. <laughs> and that's a good kettle of fish to think about. There you go. <laughs> Andrew Foyce is chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure for being here. Thanks very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities 
is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.